I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today's reading is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, along with 1 Chronicles chapter 20. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that David stays home while he sends Joab out to battle. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbath. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a young woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down into thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields, Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass, when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, 
And if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech the son of Jebusheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall, that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, Thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us, and came out unto us into the field. And we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now here is that infamous story of David and Bathsheba. Her husband fought in Israel's army, but was not a naturally born Hebrew. He was a Hittite, married to a Jewish woman. Do you suppose David discounted the importance of Uriah's life because he was not Jewish by blood? Well, anyway, why isn't David out there fighting his own battles? Israel's at war. David did a bad, bad thing here. Adultery complicated by conspiracy to commit murder. Verses 4 and 5 would indicate that this wasn't even a casual meeting that just escalated out of control. David saw Bathsheba bathing, immediately sent for her, spent intimate time with her, and then sent her back home. For a big-time king, these actions might have been no big deal had Israel not been a nation under Jehovah. But God expects more from his people. The timetable for action was expedited by the pregnancy of Bathsheba as a result of David's selfish extramarital activities, you know, like he didn't already have enough female attention. All is well that ends well, right? No, wrong. Well, then there's Uriah. You know, what had to have made David feel like a dirty, rotten dog here is the dedication to God, his country, and his king demonstrated by this proselyted Uriah on his visit to Jerusalem from the battlefield, per David's command. While David is trying to orchestrate a cover story for his adultery by compelling Uriah to go spend a night with Bathsheba, Uriah is completely uncooperative. Look at verse 11. It says, And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servant of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. A second attempt was made, this time with the assistance of an overindulgence of alcohol, and yet that fails also to cause Uriah to seek out and spend quality time with his wife Bathsheba. To David, now the solution is simple. Uriah's got to die. David sends Uriah back to General Joab, 
with a note commanding Joab to tend to Uriah's death in battle. Clueless Uriah, well, he's carrying his own death sentence. Joab, with orders to make certain Uriah dies in battle from the king of Israel himself, makes a battle move which had proved fatal in previous Israeli battles. We see that in verse 21. Notably, the battle that caused Abimelech's death in Judges chapter 9, verses 50 to 53. In that battle, the infamous Abimelech got too close to the city wall in battle, and a woman dropped a millstone on his head. Joab apparently calculates that a similar fate will follow if he sends Uriah to fight near the wall. You notice that Joab didn't follow David's plan exactly. David's written order to Joab is seen in verse 15, where he said, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. Wow, now, that's cold. Instead, Joab sends Uriah to fight with other valiant men next to the city wall, and some of them are killed as well. Joab's plan actually resulted in the calculated deaths of others besides Uriah. Only David and Joab know the treachery that had caused the deaths of those men. David and Joab had even worked out a code, so to speak, for relaying Uriah's death from Joab to David without raising the messenger's suspicions. A carefully devised cover-up. It was deceit all the way around. Incidentally, you can see why Joab had so much influence in David's life. Even though David would like to have been rid of Joab, Joab knew where all of David's skeletons were, so to speak. Ultimately, that was Joab's undoing. With David's deathbed decree, he decreed that Joab be executed by his son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Finally, in verse 27... David makes an honest woman of Bathsheba when he marries her immediately after the death of her husband, a war hero in battle. To friends and family, David taking care of Uriah's widow must have seemed like a very noble deed on David's part. How ironic. But then in chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, Nathan shows up. Nathan the prophet, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat, and drink of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter." And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. 
Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given thee such and such things. Wherefore, thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed into his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in, and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You know, sometimes God's prophets can be just a pain. Know what I mean? You got to admire Nathan's boldness in confronting David the way he does here. Men had died for a lot less at the hand of David. Hey, David, I have a disgusting story for you. And David's all ears. Nathan tells a story. It's an allegory, which apparently David thinks is true. It's about a rich man and a poor man, a poor man with only one little sheep to his name. David was really into this rich man rips off the poor man's story when he cries out, The man that hath done this thing shall surely die. 
Nathan makes the mother of all king-bashing statements when he replies to David, Thou art the man. Then David gets ugly with his prophecy concerning the future implications of David's sin. And here's the clincher. The baby of David and Bathsheba will die. After his death, David makes a statement of reassurance to Bathsheba concerning eternal life when he says in verse 23, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, why must David's son die? Well, there's your answer in verse 14. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. The enemies of the Lord, as quoted here, must not see God's children prosper in their disobedience. It's worth noting that David still holds out the hope that God would spare his son, holds out that hope for seven days, even after Nathan's prophecy that his son would in fact die. Notice verse 16. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. However, after the child dies, David readily accepts the reality. David doesn't blame Nathan for the consequences of his own sin. As a matter of fact, Nathan continues to hold a place of prominence in the reign of David. He even takes part in the inauguration of King Solomon later on. As we analyze God's methods as best we can, a principle seems to emerge here. God doesn't let the overt disobedience of his children go unnoticed. God chastises disobedience. Hey, but didn't David say he was sorry? I mean, why did the child have to die? Well, here's the deal. When a Christian, or God's people, when they disobey God, God chastises, and it's to be expected. But what if one repents of his wrongdoing? Doesn't that wipe the slate clean? Well, yes, of course. God forgives our sin, according to 1 John 1, 9, which says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, the consequence of that sin is not necessarily erased. Maybe so, maybe not. Though David did cry out in sorrow and repented of his evil deed, the prophecy of Nathan regarding the death of his child proceeded nonetheless. There's a powerful lesson on the strength of an unconditional covenant in this account. Keep in mind, at this point in time, David functioned under the provisions of the covenant that God had made with him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-16. through 16. We refer to these promises made to David by God in that passage as the Davidic covenant. I've written an article on the Davidic covenant. You can find it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or if you're looking right now at the notes for today's reading, you can see there's a link there the Davidic covenant, click there and you can read that covenant. In those promises, we see that God had provided that David's throne would last forever. David was given a cornerstone role in the future of Israel that would extend all the way into eternity. And those promises were given unconditionally by God himself. Many people have trouble understanding the nature of an unconditional covenant. When God makes an unconditional covenant with man, that means that God will keep his promise based upon God's faithfulness. 
the man's faithfulness with whom God made the covenant, well, that's just not a factor. Indisputably, David was not faithful to God in this instance. But that didn't invalidate the promise that God had made previously in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, because those promises were the content of an unconditional covenant. By the way, God's promise of salvation to believers is another unconditional covenant. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's just one of many passages in the New Testament where we see the strength of an unconditional covenant with regard to salvation. God simply never changes his mind on an unconditional covenant. As in David's case, God did not let his sin go without dealing with it. That's where the biblical concept of chastisement comes into play. If you'd like a greater understanding of this concept of chastisement, then look at the notes on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 17. So, what good can come from the marriage of David and Bathsheba? Well, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Verse 24. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife, and went in unto her, and lay with her, and she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So who was King Solomon's mama? Well, it was Bathsheba. God forgave David and gave him the next king of Israel through Bathsheba. However, David's sin was not without future consequences. Chastisement from God. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, to skip back and look at those verses once again, Nathan prophesied from God that the following consequences would follow David as a result of his sin. Here they are. First of all, he told uh, David, The sword shall never depart from thine house. Well, that starts with the rape of David's daughter by her half-brother Amnon. That takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1-22, through 22, the very next chapter. It continues as David flees his own city of Jerusalem for fear of his son Absalom until Absalom's death in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1-18. through 18. Nathan also told David, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, a prophecy from God. Absalom flees Jerusalem after executing the death of his half-brother Amnon in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 23 to 39. Nathan also relayed from God to David the following, I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of of this son. In the attempted overthrow, David's own son Absalom takes David's wives in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 21 and 22, in plain sight of all Israel upon the king's own housetop. And then finally, Nathan reports to David from God, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. 
Absalom's attempted coup was viewed by everybody in Jerusalem and became known throughout all Israel. As we mentioned earlier, here's an important addition to the principle regarding forgiveness from God. 1 John 1, nine says, With regard to believers, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, however, does not preclude future consequences as a result of that sin. David suffered chastisement at the hand of God for his sinful act of adultery and murder. But God never rescinded the covenant made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-16. through 16. As a matter of fact, that covenant was valid before, during, and after David's sin. David knew the consequences of his sin that would follow. Nathan had carefully outlined those consequences. Nevertheless, David writes a heart-wrenching Psalm 51 in the aftermath of Nathan's prophecy. It's a good psalm to read right now. Even though David had his faults, he was a man after God's own heart, first mentioned even before David was king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. That brings us to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 to 31, paralleled here by 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. We see that David takes the Ammonite prize. 2 Samuel 12, verse 26. And Joab fought against Rabbath of the children of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. And David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took their king's crown from off his head, the weight whereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head, and he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought forth the people that were therein, and put them under saws, and under harrows of iron, and under axes of iron, and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus did he unto all the cities of the children of Ammon. So David and all the people returned into Jerusalem." Now let's look at the parallel passage over in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time that kings go out to battle, Joab led forth the power of the army and wasted the country of the children of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried at Jerusalem, and Joab smote Rabbah and destroyed it. And David took the crown of their king from off his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold. And there were precious stones in it, and it was set upon David's head, and he brought also exceeding much spoil out of the city. And he brought out the people that were in it, and cut them with saws and with harrows of iron and with axes. Even so dealt David with all the cities of the children of Ammon. And David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Hey, uh, what about the capital of the Ammonite kingdom, Rabbah? Well, Joab's on it. This finishes off the Ammonites, their slaves of Israel now. This battle and the subsequent capture of Rabbah, a land of the Ammonites, just gets three verses in First Chronicles. David stays behind in Jerusalem to Joab, sends for him to come try on the crown. 
a crown that was more for show than daily wearing. Seventy-five pounds it weighed. In the Chronicles rendition, Ezra sticks to the battle results instead of dealing with the whole Bathsheba episode. Uh, Ezra skips that altogether. These Ammonites were subsequently executed, apparently in the fashion of cruelty, to which the Ammonites were accustomed to inflicting on others. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1-15, through 15, we see that. And then we have another war with the Philistines. It gets five verses in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 4-8. through 8. And it came to pass after this that there arose war at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai the Hushathite slew Sippai, that was the, the children of the giant, and they were subdued. And there was war again with the Philistines, and Ethanan, the son of Jer, slew Lamai, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, whose spear staff was like a weaver's beam. And yet again there was war at Goth, where was a man of great stature, whose fingers and toes were four and twenty, six on each hand and six on each foot. And he also was the son of the giant." But when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaim, David's brother, slew him. These were born into the giant in Goth, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Boy, those Philistines had some big kids. Must have been something in the water. This guy, Sippai, had four extra appendages, two extra toes, and two extra fingers. We read about him also in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 20. He's related to Goliath. David and his men take care of them, though. It's worth noting here that Ezra, over in 1 Chronicles, he skips the whole David-Absalom crisis that occupies the chapters in 2 Samuel from chapters 13 to 20. That's why there's an eight-chapter gap of 2 Samuel occurrences between 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3, and four. So, just to be clear here, between verses 3 and 4, 1 Chronicles chapter 20, 2 Samuel packs in all the chapters from 13 to 20, describing incidents that take place that aren't reported in 1 Chronicles at all. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.